Hey everybody, welcome to the men's global live stream. I'm Dusty Davis and I'm so excited to invite you into week four of our series Push and Pull, where we've been looking at and unpacking the tensions that we experience in our Christian faith when we find two callings uh, in scripture, two desires in our heart that seem to be at odds with one another. Now, not necessarily between right and wrong, uh, but, but that push and that pull, like week one, we talked about being and doing. How God's man is not just called to a life of being and intake and putting good things in. Uh, he's expected to move out. Uh, he's expected to express those things that God's done in his life. And so we live in that tension of being and doing. In week two, we looked at the rhythms of following and leading, of being men who are humble enough to be led by Jesus and by the mentors that God's placed in our life, uh, and then men that are courageous enough to step up and lead those behind us, knowing that one of our greatest jobs is equipping the next generation with godly leaders. Last week, in session three, we talked about the rhythm of staying and going. When is God's man called to stay in obedience, and when is he staying in fear and apathy? When is God's man called to go out in faith, and when is he running out ahead of God's plan rashly? We kind of talked about wrestling in that. When are we called to stay, and when are we kind of called to go? But today, we're going to look at a very all-encompassing rhythm that works itself out in some specific ways, but we're going to look about when does God's man say yes, and when does God's man say no? The rhythm of yes and no. Now, this dynamic exists in all of our lives. And you've probably heard some version of the reality that every yes is actually also a no. Because to say yes to something, I have to say no to other things in the most basic when I'm talking about uh, resources that, that diminish my time. Saying yes to this means I can't physically say yes to this thing. So our yeses are actually no's. And I think sometimes a little bit too often in our faith, we focus only on the, the simple versions of this rhythm, right? God's man says yes to godly things and no to sinful things. That is true. But there are deeper things. There are deeper things that you and I are called to that aren't as clear. And God's man needs to know when to say yes, to know the things he says yes to, and to know what things he has to say no to in order to say yes. When you and I are looking at two things that could potentially be God-honoring, when does God's man say yes? And when does God's man say no? As you and I seek to follow after Jesus, we need to know specifically what he's calling us into. And right as we jump into this topic, right, we, we, we're going to jump into the scripture and we're going to see one of the most all-encompassing and most challenging things that God's man is called to say yes and no to. This is something that Jesus spoke about often and modeled all the time but it's still something that we wrestle with. It's something that's almost absent as we look out into culture today. This truth, guys. God's man is called to say no to self in order to say yes to serve. God's man says no to himself that he might say yes to serving. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. God's man does not seek to be served like his king. He seeks to serve because that's the heart of our father in heaven. 
And just like I love to see the things that I care about modeled in my children, our Heavenly Father looks down with such pleasure when He sees His heart replicated in His men. Guys, He delights to see us transforming into the likeness of His Son, Jesus. Jesus revealed that serving others was the very purpose for which He was here. Now, how countercultural is that? He existed to serve. Now, that's upside-down kingdom thinking, and we're going to talk a lot about that in this session. But how rare and beautiful is that? Because our world seeks the exact opposite, doesn't it? We seek to be served as often as possible. Heck, in our culture today, you can value, you can, you can measure your value, rather, by how much other people do for you, right? We look at your job. How important are you? How many people report to you? What do all of those people do for you? We measure success wrongly by what it is that we receive from the hands of others. Yet our God, in His infinite wisdom, is showing us the upside-down kingdom that He came to build. Guys, and, and so often the truths that we read in Scripture are challenging because they run counter to our flesh. Because most often what the heart naturally desires is not the things of God, but as the men of God, we live according to His Spirit. The wisdom of heaven is beyond us. We submit to it, and this is one of those places that we exist to serve other people. Guys, we see the almighty God of the universe saying that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, had one purpose, that He came to serve others, to give himself away that others would benefit. Guys, that's the true nature of serving. We lose that another might win. Jesus Christ descended so that you and I would be lifted up. Jesus Christ became sin so that you and I could be freed and washed of it. Jesus gave himself away so that we could receive eternal life, reconciliation, restoration. Jesus lost that we might win. And in doing so, he showed us something miraculous. In losing, he, he won. The upside-down kingdom is beautiful. He literally died in order to bring life. The resurrection itself is such a perfect picture for what we're talking about this morning. But Jesus modeled this way before he chose the cross. Many, many times. We're going to look at a few of those today, but the first one we're going to look at is in John chapter 13. Grab a Bible, head over to John chapter 13. Now, we see Jesus uh, nearing the end of his life here. When, when, uh, while you're turning there, I'll set the stage. So he and his boys have just celebrated the Passover, and Jesus knew that the hour of his death was, was approaching. And so as the disciples sat down to share a meal together, Jesus arises, but for a very different purpose than the disciples might have expected. We're going to pick it up in John chapter 13 and verse 4. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. All of the disciples are sitting around a table, relaxing, enjoying each other's company and some good food. And in the middle of this, Jesus stands up, and then he gets low. 
the creator God in human flesh on bended knee washing feet. Guys, can you just imagine what was going on in this room? The hands that literally hung the stars in place, the mind that contained all wisdom, all knowledge, all truth, the breath that literally had, had spoken life into existence, all of those things were now bent on one thing, washing filth from the feet of the disciples. And to get the context, guys, is so important because this job wasn't just gross, it was shameful. Uh, nowadays, we don't wash each other's feet. Heck, nowadays, we don't even shake each other's hand. We do the awkward fist bump or the super awkward elbow bump just to convey just how dirty I think you are. But this job at this time, washing feet, it wasn't just undesirable. It was something you saved for the lowest servant. The lowest of the low was given the foot washing job. And yet this is the type of work that Jesus willingly entered into. Why would he do this? Wasn't he afraid that this was going to somehow lower himself in the disciples' view that they wouldn't take him seriously as leader and master if he chose this, this lowly thing? Wouldn't this erode credibility? Um, wasn't he afraid of, of what they would think? But guys, we see the motivation for our king in the beginning of this passage. Now, we picked it up in verse 4, but let's rewind to verse 3. Why did Jesus do this? Why was he able to? Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So, he got up from the table took off his robe, etc., etc. Because Jesus knew who he was, he was free to serve. Identity drives action, period. Because he was secure in the authority and the power that had been given to him, he was able to care for others without fear for establishing a, a presence of power. Because he had the proper perspective an eternal perspective, knowing that he came from God the Father. He's going back to him someday. He was able to organize his life and his efforts properly, eternally, into pouring into the lives of others. Guys, only in this mindset can you and I move out and serve in the same way. Only then will we desire the, the greatest things that this life has to offer against our flesh, against our culture, getting low and serving others, giving ourselves away for another. Guys, just like we saw in the passage uh, we read earlier from Matthew, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And God's man will desire those things as he, followers, as he follows after Jesus. It's going to be the natural response of our heart that God's man will say no to himself so that he can say yes to serve. But guys, only when you and I have the, the same thinking that we see from Jesus in this passage in, in verse 3, only when we know that we are God's children and that one day we're going back to be with him will we rightly prioritize our lives. Only when we've answered the, the power and authority problem that every man faces, submitting to God's ultimate power and authority, knowing that in humility we find true power, in the restraint, in the one who doesn't seek to inflict his will, that, that just shows that 
that we understand where true power comes from. And then God can unleash that power and do dangerous and good things through us. Only when we know, guys, that we're going back to God, that this camping trip life will be over soon, will we place our efforts for that interaction, when we stand before the Father face to face. Because only then will we seek to live for, for heavenly treasure, right? When we have that mindset, the kind that's found in serving other people. Guys, we've read this next scripture a million times, no doubt. But it begs repeating. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. Don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth. Don't seek power and authority here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust can't destroy. Thieves don't break in and steal because wherever your treasure is, mindset, there the desires of your heart will be also attitudes and actions. See, not only has God's man decided uh, that only eternal rewards matter, God's man has decided that only God's opinion matters. That the only true joy in this life is found in serving the king. And oftentimes, our greatest opportunity to serve God is to serve others. Right? Jesus laid this out for us. What am I looking for you from you guys? Love God. Love others. And often we find that I love others by loving God. I serve God by serving others. Look at verse uh, 21, guys, we just read. It says, where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. Brothers, when, when we start to pour ourselves out in service, right, when we start to place the treasure of our time and efforts into another, something happens to our heart. Our heart starts to move out in new ways that as we serve people, as we lead with the action of serving, our heart comes along afterwards and we start to value so much more the people that we're serving. Now, oftentimes our love moves us to action, but sometimes guys, it's obedience that moves us to action and then the heart comes after. The act of serving gives us a servant's heart. So the encouragement there, guys, is don't always wait for the feeling. Act your way into it in obedience to our great king. Actions leading to desires. Again, upside down kingdom, boys. This is the God that we serve. So God's man will seek to serve others by saying no to himself. But remember, your flesh and my flesh will always try to be served. It will always try to assert its authority. It does not want to serve. It wants to be Serve, it wants power, prestige, position. That's, that's the carnal man inside each of us. It was this way for Jesus' closest followers. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, so in this passage, James and John's mom comes up to Jesus to make a request on behalf of her grown boys. Now guys, this is already embarrassing. Okay, two grown men, but mommy rolls up to Jesus and says, can you please save a spot for my boys in heaven? And can you seat them in places of honor right next to yourself, Jesus? Now, if you've ever thought you had an embarrassing moment with your mom, this probably puts it to shame. But Jesus responds as he always does, lovingly telling her, you don't really know what you're, what you're asking me. Four, and 
it starts a good conversation. Well, actually, the disciples get kind of pissed, right? They, they start bickering amongst each other. But then this good conversation comes out because Jesus steps in and inserts in, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25. You know that the rulers of this world lorded over their people. And officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader amongst you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be great must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, full circle back to where we started, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus starts off by talking about what his boys can expect to see out there in the world and what they can expect to see if they look honestly into their own hearts. Because he's just had this request from those on the inner circle. He's saying that you're going to naturally want to elevate yourself. That the rulers in this world, when you look outside, what you can expect is that they're lording their power. It even says flaunting their authority over those underneath them that they're gonna seek power, they're gonna seek position, they're gonna want to be served. And then he says something so incredibly powerful. Guys, I can just picture Jesus lovingly pulling the boys in when he says this part and saying, but among you, it will be different. Some translations say, but not so among you. He doesn't say it should be, it's my hope I'd really like it if he makes a statement of fact amongst my men, life and leadership look different. They just look different. Guys, the Christian faith has had people scratching their heads since the very beginning. Because to our human flesh and our human wisdom, it just doesn't make sense. But like we said, we live according to the spirit and not the flesh. And I think this passage opens up a conversation around an area that's commonly misunderstood by those outside the faith and even those inside the faith. It's, it's the statement that Jesus makes about greatness. Just like Jesus's mercy is, is often misinterpreted as weakness, we often misunderstand the pursuit of, of Jesus, the pursuit uh, of, of humility, of meekness, to be that, that somehow this faith is against greatness. That to be a Christian is, is to accept a losing position and just try to blend in and not make waves. You might have seen this or you might have experienced this in your life. That, that God's man is really just called to try to blend, blend in, not disrupt anything, to settle for a quiet uh, life of, of mediocrity. That that's, that that's following Jesus because greatness is obviously a sinful desire of our flesh. Don't make waves because greatness is always ego-driven. Not true. Not true according to King Jesus. Jesus speaks specifically to his boys in this passage about desiring greatness. Now, does that surprise you? Because he starts off in verse 25 by saying that the rulers in this world are going to do it one way. You guys are going to do it a different way. But look at verse 26. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you. He does not say, don't try to be great. Jesus doesn't deny greatness. He redefines it. He doesn't deny it. He redefines it. He doesn't deny or shame the desire for greatness. He just redefines what the term greatness means and how we're supposed to achieve it. He gives his boys a new target and says, greatness 
looks like service. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. God's man says no to himself in order to say yes to serving other people. God's man puts aside trying to get his own needs met and seeks intentionally to meet the needs of others. Guys, even though we know um, that there is great joy in serving, right? We've experienced that. We, we've felt God's pleasure. We felt that, you know, the, the greater to give than to receive. We've experienced that. But God's man has to realize that it might not always feel like that. And serving will always have a cost associated with it. There are things that we're going to have to forego. Like we said, every yes is also a no. Serving others means that we're going to have to lay things aside. Things to say yes to and things to say no to. God's man says no to his own pride and position in order to say yes to God's plans and people. No to my pride, no to the positions that I'm seeking so that I may be able to say yes to the plans that God has and to the people that God wants me to reach. God man turns down positions of power and prestige. Well, according to how this world views power and prestige. He says no to his own pride so that he can step towards God's purposes and God's people. And guys, Jesus, again, was the perfect model for us. Jesus sat in the position of ultimate authority. Ultimate authority. He sat in the very presence of God Almighty. He was there from the beginning. He is one with God, right? This is Jesus, the victorious one. Yet in Philippians chapter 2, reading in verse 5, I'm told that I must, you must have the same attitude that Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. This was not open to negotiation. <laughs> when it comes to our attitudes, it, it has to reflect the attitude of our leader. The heart of the follower always reflects the heart of the leader. Jesus was humble. Jesus chose humility. Now, our flesh wants nothing to do with humility, and so the descent into service is always working against our natural flesh. But guys, this is what the world needs right now more than ever. This world needs, we don't need more people willing to step up into positions of influence. We need people willing to step down into service. We don't need more social media influencers we need people who want to be servants. Less selfies, more service. We don't need uh, someone else to be seeking fame and fortune on YouTube. We need people who are willing to get low, to be invisible, and lift other people up. We need to start a full-on race to the bottom where God's men are finding ways to get low, to get underneath. I can only lift someone up as I get beneath them. We must have the same attitude, it says, as Jesus Christ. Look at the rest of the passage. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up 
gave up voluntarily his divine privileges, and then he took up the humble position of a slave. All of this was done voluntarily. Just as, as no one took Jesus' life, the scripture said, he, he laid it down willingly. Jesus was not relegated to service or sent there because he couldn't handle leadership. He chose to become a slave. In the Christian life, the way up is always down. But guys, pride lurks at the door of our heart and is trying to bust its way in. It wants to take over. I can't tell you how sad it is for me when I see the, the countless posts, the, the, the egregious lengths that our culture is going to right now, not only to, to justify, um, but to try to celebrate our own pride. The, the social media posts, the rants, the rays, where men are referring to the kingdoms that they're creating, the futures that they're manifesting, the best versions of themselves that they're becoming, and celebrating their own accomplishments, all of the things that they're going to do or currently are doing. The human heart wants to puff itself up in pride. We long to worship ourselves, and so we head to the altar of pride to offer sacrifices of praise to ourselves and our own accomplishments, and we don't even realize who we sound like. We sound exactly like our enemy. Guys, in Isaiah chapter 14, we read about the fall of Satan. And just listen to how frighteningly familiar this sounds when you turn on your television or scroll through your social media feed. I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. That should creep you out. This is our enemy, and all he says is, I will, I will, I will, me, my, I'm going to make it happen. Stand back, world. I'm coming. God's man must strap up daily and fight the internal battle against pride. Every day, recognize, because culture is not going to help. Culture is actually going to stand back and dump gasoline on the fire of your pride, try to fan it into flames, and then cheer you on to destruction. It's important for us to remember as God's men, in order to say no to pride, I have to say yes to humility. God's man has to choose humility. This is an active and ongoing decision because this is a common misconception. Humility is not the absence of pride. It's the presence, the intentional presence of a heart attitude that rightly recognizes who God Almighty is and who we are. Humility is not just the yin-yang to pride. Humility is, is a completely different decision altogether. And it's a decision, a willful, conscious, constant decision to choose uh, not to think less of ourselves, just to think about ourselves less often. It's not about... Uh, thinking that we are not worthy. God's word says contrary things to you and I as God's son, fully loved, right? It's not about uh, thinking negatively about ourselves. It's about choosing to order our lives properly. And as God's men, you have two choices. You can be humble or humbled, but the, the reality is coming. We have to choose it. We have to choose humility. Look at 1 Peter 5, 6. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Look at the activity in this verse. Who does the humbling? Humble yourselves 
choose humility. God's man chooses to get low in humility and then experiences the promise of that verse. He will lift you up. We trust the timing and the manner in which God wants to lift us up in his timing. Because guys, when we seek to elevate ourselves, we gain nothing. The man who chooses the humble position will be lifted up because God is for the humble. Scripture says it all over the place. Look at James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I don't know about you. I do not want to be opposed by the almighty creator God. I want to be on his side every single time. So I choose humility. But another important and somewhat misunderstood rhythm in this yes and no dance is this. God's man says no to culture so he can say yes to Christ. Now, I want to pause here because something is happening in our Christian culture uh, that we cannot tolerate as God's men. God's man loves people, reflecting the the Father's heart because for God so loved the world, right? It was out of love for his children that God offered himself as a sacrifice. But God's man loves people and recognizes that his battle is with Satan alone. We battle against evil, not against people. Actually, we move out into culture in order to see this society redeemed, in order to win the people. We don't sit back on the sidelines and choose to watch the world burn. Guys, I've heard too many Christians lately casually making comments about the descent of our society, almost as if the world is getting what it deserves, and as if the Christian guy giving me this narrative is happy to see that it's happening. Guys, saying no to culture comes out of a deep desire to see every heart restored to Jesus Christ. This has always been the desire of Jesus' followers. This is why they went out, as we talked about last week. This is why they took the gospel around the planet, so that everyone might know, that everyone might repent and return to their Father in heaven. Guys, it's because we love and value people that we reject the culture's values. We're not rejecting the people. We're moving out in love towards the people. Guys, since the very beginning, the followers of Jesus have said no to culture in some pretty radical ways. In in, in ancient Roman culture, it was a common practice to abandon unwanted children and just leave them in a forest and leave them to the elements. Killing children was even legal. Sound familiar? Children were left to die of exposure because it was believed that the parents weren't killing them, they were leaving the child to the fates. And so the fates could decide. But the Christians said no to the culture and yes to Jesus, not by picketing, not by demonizing those who left their children or ranting and raving on social media. They said no to the culture by going out into the forest, by bringing these children into their own homes and raising them as their own children. That's no to culture and yes to Jesus. During the time that Jesus walked the earth, children were thought of as possessions, as a nuisance. Women were seen as second-class citizens. Their, their, Their testimony didn't even hold up in court. Slaves had no rights. Yet under the radical and counter-cultural teaching of Jesus Christ, the Christians moved out towards 
children and spoke of their value. Matthew chapter 19, verse 14, Jesus rebukes Peter for trying to keep kids from him. Uh, he says, let the children come to me. No to this culture. Yes, to Jesus and the people he loves. Don't hinder them. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus valued women so highly that he took heat for it. Yes to Jesus, no to culture. Jesus made women the heroes of the stories and parables that he taught. He engaged with them in public so often it made others critical of Jesus. Uh, he moved towards them to display his love. He included them in, in, in his group of people that were moving and changing the world. He entrusted them with incredible kingdom work in the face of a society that did not value them. That's yes to Jesus and no to culture. Jesus spoke often about caring for the poor, caring for the marginalized, seeing those that society oversteps. And his message was incredibly misunderstood and even offensive because poverty was seen as a punishment. Jesus said no to the culture he was in. But guys, the lesson remains for you and I. Jesus and his followers said no to the culture and then moved out towards the people caught up in the lies of that culture. And too often today, God's men are hunkered down in spiritual bomb shelters, wrongly believing that saying no to culture means avoiding anything and everyone who doesn't think like us, moving to some remote location to homeschool our children and build walls around ourselves. I don't think that's what Jesus was calling us to when he said that we were to be in the world but not of it. Saying no to culture always means saying yes to people. And saying no to culture always has a cost associated with it. Jesus modeled that for us so beautifully. What did saying no to himself, to the established order, what did it cost Jesus? Everything. And as Jesus was accepting and submitting to the Father's will, we see, we see another great truth for us as God's men, as we seek to live this out, as we seek to discern the rhythms of yes and no, God's man, like Jesus, says no to his own plan in order to submit to Christ's. We see Jesus agonizing in the garden, honestly pouring his heart out to the Father, laying out his plan, right? If there's another way, yet not my will. Your will be done. And following that example, God's man lays down his plans, his desires, his hopes for the future that he might pick up God's plans. I love this verse. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. I think sometimes we can wrongly read and interpret this and think that, hey, so as long as I enjoy Jesus and spend some time hanging out with him, he's going to give me everything I want, right? Delighting in him, he gives me the desires of my heart. Maybe he'll co-sign for my plans in the future, but that's, that's not true. What this verse is saying is that to delight in the Lord, to spend time with Him, to prioritize Him, to seek His face, to elevate Him in your heart and in your life, to submit to His will, something will start happening inside of you and me. Our desires are going to start to change. As we delight ourselves in God's Word and in His truth, my desires will start to look like His desires. And Jesus doesn't give me what I want. He starts to make it so that I want what He wants. He changes me from the inside out. Our hearts start to change with us and then we submit to God's 
plans. But there's a lot that we have to lay down, guys, when it comes to plans and desires and hopes because our plans and our desires always seem really good to us. Here's the problem. You and I are physical beings and a lot of what we want are the things that we can see and feel and experience even when it comes to pursuing God, pursuing the experience and the emotion. But the problem is, if all of my desires are of this flesh, I'm going to seek a fleshly path to satisfy them. Look at this loving correction in John, uh, from John rather, in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love this world or anything in this world. Don't desire these things that you can see alone. Don't seek after it. Don't order your life so that you can acquire experiences or things. Don't, don't choose your own plans in order to satisfy those desires. Live according to the Spirit. This isn't a decision that you and I make once and for all. This is a daily, ongoing rhythm of submission. We see Paul talking about this struggle in Romans chapter 7 where he says, I don't even understand myself. I want to do what's right, and I don't do it. Can anybody relate? I mean, my gosh, can, can, to have a desire to please God but then realize that at our core, we just want what we want. That the enemy lies within us. Let's keep reading. I know it's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I'm doing is wrong, this at least shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. Guys, Paul cracks the code right there for us. We cannot be trusted. It's like watching the spy movie and you're watching them talk to the person that you know is a traitor and everything in you is screaming at the screen saying, don't tell him your plans. That's the enemy. Paul connects a hard truth right here for God's man. We cannot trust our instincts. We cannot seek to bring about our own plans to fulfill our own desires. Those things will always lead us away from God and harm people in the process. Paul does offer the hope that, hey, I, at least I know what I'm doing is wrong. It shows that, that the, the, the love of the law lives in me, but he says point blank, sin lives in me. And the same is true for us. God has washed us from it and he has set us free not to walk in sin, but to walk according to the spirit. But here's the thing, we have to abide in him, choosing him daily that we might walk in victory over the sin that exists inside of us. It sounds yucky to say that sin lives in us, but it's just true, brothers. We have to live with the reality that the traitor is within us. This thing called the flesh wants to keep pushing for my will for my plans, and it does not want to serve. It wants to be served, and it wants to see its plans realized. It wants to exalt itself like we saw from our enemy. But God's man says no to these things and yes to Jesus. God's man says yes to the truth of God's word and not the lies that the culture just happens to be peddling that week. He says no to himself that he might say yes to a life of service, following his king down even to washing the feet of those that God's put in his life, laying aside pride to pick up humility, laying aside our own plans to pick up a plans that will create for us an eternal reward 
and change the lives of the people around us. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 14, we see the triumphant uh, believers standing tall. And it's beautiful. We see those who've kept themselves pure. And I love this. Those that overcame, we read this in verse 14, chapter 4 of Revelation. They've kept themselves pure, following the Lamb wherever He goes. Brothers, whether we're called to say yes or we're called to say no, my prayer is that you and I would be men bold enough and humble enough and with enough faith to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need the wisdom that comes from heaven. And it's so amazing that it's, first of all, humble and pure. God, you you refer to yourself often as gentle and humble of heart. And our world does not elevate those characteristics, Lord. We seek the leader who is domineering, who is certain, who is sure, who is in control. But Jesus, you constantly show us that the way up is down. Lord, my prayer is that you would show us all where to say yes and where to say no. Lord, give us enough faith to wait on you. Give us enough courage to step into the places that you're calling us. May we be a a generation of men that follow the Lamb wherever he leads. We love you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We'll see you next time.